Thanks. Our kids can head back to uh, be with our children's workers and take off to Transformation Station. So if you're a kid all the way up to fifth grade, uh, feel free to head back to the back and uh, go to your respective class. Uh, for the rest of us, let's open up uh, our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We'll be starting in verse 1. And if you want to use one of the Bibles that we provided for you there in the rows, uh, that'll be page 863. So if you want to grab one of those, 863, it'll help out as uh, we make our way through the, uh, the chapter this morning. Uh, so when I was a, a little kid, I loved summer vacation. And, uh, you know, of course, for one, on the one hand, that meant that I got to play a lot of basketball, right? Being out of school, shoot a lot of hoops out in the driveway, play with my friends. But, but another highlight for me was always taking summer vacation, and so I can remember as a little kid, uh, us packing up our family, packing up our, you know, 1986 Navy Ford Escort, right, hatchback, and, you know, kind of loading that thing up with all the sandcastle equipment and, the, you know, the floaties and things of that nature. And, and, and journeying from Kentucky, uh, most of the time it was always to Florida so we could have a good time, right? And as a six, seven, eight-year-old kid, you know, obviously when we got to the beach, my main concern was just having a good time, building sandcastles, getting out on the water. And you know, as, as a kid, I had no clue how huge and how great the ocean really is that I was playing in, you know? And even as a teenager, I don't know if some of you can identify with this, but as a teenager, remember, every time I would go to the ocean, I would always want to see if, you know, how far I can make it out into the ocean. Have you ever done this? You know, so it's like, you know, you make your way out through the waves, they're crashing, get up about waist deep, you know, you plow through some more waves up to your shoulder, and then all of a sudden, you're tiptoeing through the waves, right? And you, and you think, I am way out in this thing. You're 180 feet from shore and five and a half feet deep in the ocean, and you are way out, right? But then as we, as we grow up and, and as we become maybe adults and we mature a little bit, and we, we, our perspective changes, and all of a sudden, now when I stand before the ocean, I'm not thinking, man, 180 feet from shore, five and a half feet deep, that's like a, that's like a big deal anymore, Right? Because I realized that in the Pacific Ocean at the Mariana Trench, the ocean is not five and a half feet deep. It is 36,200 feet deep. So it's amazing what happens when our perspective changes a bit. And you know, I have this great personal fear, and I even have this fear for us as a church, that, that we would get out into the ocean of faith and this whole deal about the kingdom of God, and we would be 180 feet from shore and five and a half feet, and we would think that we are way out in this thing to discover that there is so much more for us that God might have for us individually as a church if we would only have eyes to see how great this ocean depth of God's love and grace and mercy truly is in Christ. So this morning, I want to I want to ask you to, to ask yourself a question: Are you are you five and a half feet out in this deal, or, or are you seeking the depths of a relationship with God? To put the question directly: How great is your faith. See, Luke chapter 7 is going to teach us a lot about faith this morning. 
It's going to help us have both a deeper view of Christ on the one hand, but also hopefully it's going to cultivate a greater and deeper faith in him as well. So if you would, read these first 10 verses of Luke chapter 7 with me as we get into our chapter this morning. This is what Luke writes. He says, after he had finished all his sayings, of course, referring referring to the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So here's what's going on in the passage. We have this Roman centurion. He would have been not the highest ranking official in the Roman army, but he would have been, you know, not the, the, the commonplace soldier either because he would have had authority over 100 soldiers under him. And it says that this centurion was not in a typical everyday situation. He had a servant who was very sick. And the servant wasn't just any servant. It says in, in the passage that this is a servant that he, he loved deeply. And so he was concerned about him. He wanted him, of course, to be healed. And so perhaps he had heard of Jesus, that Jesus had the power to heal, that Jesus would care for his servant, perhaps that Jesus would, would, would find uh, mercy toward uh, his servant and, and bring healing to him. And so uh, the, the, the centurion says that he sent elders of the Jews, someone that might have Jesus' ear, Right? And it says when the elders of the Jews got to Jesus, they began lobbying for the centurion, right? They kind of make, make a case for him to seek to persuade Jesus, say, come on, Jesus. This is, this is a good guy here, man. He's, he's helped us build our synagogue. If anyone deserves this, it's him. And amazingly, Jesus goes and he's on his way to his house to help him out. But then, interestingly, Luke tells us that the centurion proceeds to send friends with another message to Jesus. And this time, the centurion's message that he wants Jesus to know, he says, look, you know, hey, you do not even have to come to my house. And I I didn't presume to, to, to come to you myself. Why? Because I am not worthy. Do you see the, 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 the distinction between the two, two messengers? On the one hand, the, the elders of the Jews say, Jesus, he's worthy. You need to do this for him. And the centurion is saying, you know what? I am not worthy to have you do this for me. There is no sense of of presumption or entitlement in the centurion's heart. 
I love this. When he, when he looked in the mirror, he did not see something that, that was admirable or worthy in himself that would obligate Jesus to, to do this for him. And so I think it might be good for us to ask, you know, when, when we come before God to make a request, does God exist to, to serve us or do we exist to serve him? Do we come to God with a measure of humility? God, I'm not worthy, but, but you are worthy and my life is in your hands. See, this is the, 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 the soil on which great faith is cultivated, a humble heart before God. And so the centurion has humility before Christ, but he doesn't stop there. Because as we continue on, as we see in, in verses 7 and 8, we find a picture of great faith. And this great faith is remarkable because it's placing faith in the authority of Christ. Don't miss this concept of authority. John quoted J.I. Packer earlier. Packer says this about authority. Authority is a relational word which signifies the right to rule. And so in verses seven and eight, look back there again. He says, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Now, why is this so amazing? Well, for two reasons. Number one, he believed that Jesus was not bound by spatial or geographic limitations. All right, so, so Jesus was not at the house yet, but he could still, he still had the power within himself, the authority to get the job done. And then number two, it wasn't just that he wasn't bound by spatial or geographic limitation, but he believed that all Jesus needed to do was just say the word. So he didn't have to show up. He didn't have to touch the servant. He didn't have to say, you know, abracadabra to get the job done. Jesus just has to speak the word. And why is this? Is because Jesus has all authority. And the centurion believed that. How do we know he believed that? Because he gives this example from his own life, arguing from the lesser himself to the greater Jesus. And he says, look, you just tell Jesus, I understand what this is like. I'm a centurion. That means I have officers authoritative over me in a place of, of authority over me, but I also have 100 soldiers under my command. And so if I tell one of them to go, they go. If I tell one of them to do this, they do this. If I tell one of them to come, they come. And with this request, he places himself on the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. The Bible has so much to say about the authority of Christ. I want you to think about the absolute authority of Jesus over all things. Listen to this. Jesus Christ has all authority over unclean spirits and demonic forces. His word and his teaching have authority. He has authority over sickness and disease. He has the authority, I love this, he has the authority to give someone else authority. He has authority over every human being. And this is just something to be reminded of, right? Because most of the time we operate our lives as if we have ultimate authority, right? We call our own shots. We do our own thing. And if that's your kind of thought and disposition this morning, I just want to lovingly say to you, you do not have the ultimate authority over your life. Jesus has the ultimate authority over your life. He has authority over life and death. Consider this, from birth to death, Jesus keeps our hearts pulsating with life. Jesus, in the words of Hebrews 1.3, has the authority to uphold 
the universe. So Jesus is king. Jesus is the ultimate shot caller. He needs no assistance from us. There's no limit to the power and the ability of Jesus. And we even see this in the next passage. Look, look on down to verse 11 through 17. It says, Soon after he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the, the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And so, Jesus, can you heal the sick? Check. Jesus, can you forgive sin? Check. Jesus, can you raise the dead? Check. Jesus has all authority. I mean, is this, is this the Christ that you believe in day in, day out, week in, week out? How powerful is your Christ? Are you believing God for like anything in your life? A great way to measure how much authority you believe Jesus has is just to look at your prayer life. So let me just ask a tough question. If someone were to take an inventory of your prayer life over the past month or the past several months, what conclusions would they draw about the power of God? Is your God great? Or is your God some wimpy small God that can't usually get the job done? Jesus has all authority. And when we really believe this, we will go to him again and again and again. We will ask of him all that we can and even more than we could ask because we know he has the power to come through. Now, what happens when we begin to exercise this kind of faith? Well, I, I love what Jesus, how he responds in verse nine. It says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. I mean, this, this statement should stop us in our tracks. Jesus, the Son of God, marvels at this man's faith. And he goes on to say, quite an indictment to the people who were listening, I have not found this kind of faith, even in Israel. In other words, Jesus is saying, those people, Redemption Hill perhaps sometimes, who should have the greatest faith often lack it. So what does is, what is our faith and, and the authority of Christ look like? We are called to have great faith in the authority of Christ. And let me just pause it again and, and ask, where else do we find this talk of authority in the Bible? Anything come to mind? In Matthew 28, Jesus, right before he ascended, after he was raised, makes this statement. We call it the Great Commission. And the Great Commission doesn't start in verse 19. It starts in verse 18, where Jesus says what? 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this gives us confidence, right? Jesus is instilling confidence in his disciples to say, look, as you go to tell other people about me and the satisfaction and change that I can bring to their life, go in my authority. Know that you can have confidence because I am going with you and I have power over all things. Look, it's not easy to start a church in Medford. I think we're all on the same page there, but Jesus has all authority over Medford and all these surrounding cities. So we can see God do a great work, not only in this church, but we want to start many, many churches around here and help see the gospel advance here. So if we're talking about a church scale or an individual scale, look, I know that sometimes it's kind of, you know, we freak out when we think about, man, what's it look like to, to share our faith, to invest our lives into someone else for their spiritual good. But listen, as we seek to do that, and we're going to talk more about that as we go in this chapter, man, we go with the authority of Christ and the confidence of Christ to be able to say, hey, look, I follow Christ. This is what my life look, looks like. And you can also follow him. And your life can be changed by his awesome grace. So first we see the encouragement to place great faith in the authority of Christ. Number two, strengthen your faith through the faithfulness of God. Let's look in verses 18 through 20, says this. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, this might surprise us here, right? John the Baptist. It's either John the Baptist and or his disciples who are having doubts about Jesus. They come to him and they, they ask, are you the one that is to come? In other words, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is going to get us out of this mess and save us, bring restoration to us? And they were thinking more in the physical kind of militaristic sense. But we know that Jesus came to establish a different kind of kingdom. And so they're asking questions. They're wrestling with some doubt here. And I have no doubt that there are some here this morning who may have doubts. Some may doubt the very existence of God. If you believe God exists, you may doubt if he's good and powerful considering all the suffering that we see in the world. Perhaps you doubt that Christ was really raised from the dead like the church has always believed. Perhaps you doubt that salvation is really by grace, not by works, so that no one can boast, but leads to good works, to be clear. Maybe some of you, your, your, your wrestling is not so much uh, in, in that kind of theological sense as it is practical. Man, God, are you there? Will you provide? Do you care for us, for my family right now? And I just want to say this. If, if you have doubts this morning, I, I want to encourage you to wrestle with those doubts. Don't sweep them aside. Go and pursue answers to your objections and your doubts. Because our doubts are, you know, God is big enough to handle our doubts. 
In fact, he is big enough to answer our questions and to give us some satisfactory answers that people can find both intellectually credible on the one hand and existentially satisfying on the other hand. That's a big way of just saying that faith is both reasonable and satisfying, fulfilling in our lives. And so if you have questions, go and seek answers. I believe you're going to find some really rational, incredible answers to some of those doubts. And we're here to explore those doubts with you. Some scholars believe here that, that John is the one who is doubting. And this isn't even really, I mean, it's, it's not super important for our understanding of the text. I personally don't believe it was John's doubts, but the doubts of his disciples. And so he actually sends them to Jesus to kind of help them with their doubts. So what is the remedy for our doubting? Well, one remedy is to say, go and see for yourself. This is why he sends them to Jesus, I believe. So in verses 21 and through 23, this is what we find. It says, in that hour, when they come and ask Jesus the question, it says, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them. He comes back and tells John's disciples, hey, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so what do John's disciples find when they go to Jesus and Jesus is just doing his thing, his acts of mercy, healing people? They find that all of the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. You see, Jews in their, in their messianic understanding and expectation, they knew passages like Isaiah 30, 35 that would say, hey, when the Messiah comes, he's going to cause the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, and the good news will be preached to the poor. And so Jesus is saying, you know, you've read your Old Testament. You see what's going on here? Here's your answer. God is always faithful to his promises. He fulfills all of his promises in Christ. And so let's just kind of wrestle here a bit, kind of take a step into the deep end again. Okay, you may not be able to touch right here. Okay, I want you to think about this though. What would God's promises mean if we could not bank on his faithfulness? What would God's promises mean to you if you could not bank on his faithfulness? Not much, right? I mean, if God couldn't come through, then, then, then how could you bank on his promises? It'd be quite difficult, right? But because God is faithful, because all of the promises are yes in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.20, then now the promises of God don't become this curious thing to us, but they actually become our delight. We can hope in the promises of God because God is ever faithful. And so all the promises of God that we find in Scripture, we can cling to, we can hold on to, we can delight in them, we can have great expectation. Why? Because we look back to God's past faithfulness and his current faithfulness, and we say, look, we have no reason to doubt that God will be faithful to the end. So now let's look in verses 24 through 30, and these are further reasons why. I don't believe these are John's doubts, but probably the doubts of his disciples. He, he goes on to say this, when John's messengers had gone, 
Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He says, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so Jesus is saying, look, when, when you went out to, to encounter John, you didn't find like this softy out there that didn't have some backbone. He's in a reed that's, that's easily blown to and fro by the wind. He doesn't dress in, in soft clothing. In fact, he wears camel skin and eats locusts. Okay, this was a, a man of conviction and strength. And this is not to say that John could not have had doubts too. Okay, we can't draw conclusively from this, but it seems this, this uh, follow-up comments from Jesus that, 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 that John is not the one doubting here. But as we go on through the passage, we can see that doubt was spreading far and wide concerning Jesus. Look in verse 31. Jesus continues on about the doubts of the people. He says, to the, what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? Here's what they're like. They're like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. So what Jesus is doing in this kind of clever and persuasive manner is he's saying, look, all of you who are wanting me to act a certain way and wanting John to act in a certain way, you, you are expecting us to play by your rules, but when we don't play by the rules, like little children, you get mad and you want to change the game. And of course, we are reminded that God doesn't play by our rules. Jesus has his own agenda. And it was not accepted by all. And it's not accepted by all today. But as he goes on, we know that wisdom is proved right by her children, as it says in verse 35. So, so, so look down now in 33. He says, For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. That's, that's, that's part of how you want it. But then what about Jesus? Uh, the Son of Man, he has come, eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So we can see that, that the religious leaders, they were exaggerating both the lifestyle of John and the lifestyle of Jesus. They were saying, yeah, John the Baptist, he's out in the wilderness. Yeah, he has a demon. But Jesus, you know, he, he came eating and drinking, so he's a glutton and, and, and a drunkard. And we know from reading the rest of the Bible that Jesus, unlike us at times, was never a glutton or a drunkard. But I want you to consider this, and this is really important for, for how we think about mission. Jesus did come eating and drinking. What does that tell us about him? Well, it tells us that he loved people. He loved to, to hang out with people even those on the outside, the outcast of society. And why would he do this? Well, it was his way to express his love and concern and care for them. 
He would, he would display his love and his grace to people by sitting down and having a meal with them, having a drink with them. And I would just pose to you this morning that people will probably not join you for church before they join you for a meal. We need to invite people into our lives first and help them to see that we're just real people, genuine people, not any better than them. And as we invite people into their lives and they see something, some real incredible, then we go beyond that. It doesn't say it works every time like this, but oftentimes it will work and oftentimes work a lot better if we would invite people into our lives and then invite them into a relationship with Christ. Okay? It's not to say that we don't just share at times. Hey, this is what Christ has done for me. But it's so important to, to keep that relationship, to distribute love and grace in that manner. I love what Robert Karras said in Luke's gospel. Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. He, he loved all people. Did you, did you see what, what it says in verse 34? And it says that the, the charge against Jesus was he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So, so, so let those words fall on your heart this morning. Jesus was a friend. Okay? Not just an acquaintance, a friend. Not just a Facebook friend. A, a real one. A real friend. <laughs> Are you? Do you spend time with people that maybe are not a lot like you? Maybe people that are kind of in the margins of society. They don't, they don't live or talk like you all the time. Jesus did. He cared for all people. He loved all people. He was a friend of sinners. And then Luke takes us to the end of the chapter with this beautiful case study on just that. In verse 36, he, he picks up, and this is where we find our third encouragement, to display great faith through extravagant devotion. This is what Luke writes beginning in 36. He says, one of the Pharisees asked him to, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So we have three main characters here in this story. We have the host, Simon. He was a Pharisee. We have Jesus who is presumably the distinguished guest in the house of this Pharisee. Pharisees were religious leaders of the day. Who was, they weren't always on board with the purposes of God. They like to make up little rules for other people to keep and not keep them themselves, that kind of stuff. We talked about hypocrisy last week. Sometimes the Pharisees, not always, but sometimes we're guilty of that. So we have Simon the Pharisee, the host, Jesus the distinguished guest, and this woman who was a woman of the city, she was a sinful woman. Now, we can probably draw some conclusions about maybe what some of her practices were as a woman of the city. Scholars sometimes debate about this, but the, the clue is that she was not living a super moral life. 
She was the kind of person that people would have said, hey, you know, she is outside of the kingdom of God. She has no hope of ever entering into the kingdom of God. But Jesus doesn't see it that way in Luke 7. And the shocking story here is as we look at how she, she came to Jesus, she kissed his feet and, and, and wiped his feet with her tears, with her hair, and, and put this precious, costly ointment on Jesus' feet. I mean, this is, this is shocking. People would have been shocked by this. And we're about to find that people were shocked in the room. But this shocking story is about to take a shocking twist. Look at verse 39. I love this. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he says to himself, he's thinking about what's going on here, and he's saying to himself, hey, if this guy were a prophet, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, what I love here, the irony is not only does Jesus understand the condition of this woman's heart, but he is also about to expose the heart of Simon the Pharisee. And that's what we see in verses 40 uh, and following. Listen to what Jesus says. It says, and Jesus answered saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And Jesus tells this two-verse parable. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, already with a tinge of conviction. He didn't want to say it too confidently. I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You, you gave me no kiss. You gave me no greeting. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, don't miss this line. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those in the house who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So let me just break this down quickly for us. This is a parable of reception. What we have going on is, is, is a story that Jesus used to teach two lessons. On the one hand, we have uh, opposition to the woman, right? So, so we have the woman who is, is to be received and there is opposition from the Pharisee on the one hand because this is a sinful woman and then reception from Jesus because Jesus can not look past our sin and sweep it under the rug, but he knows that his love extends to the most sinful people and so he receives her. But then there is also the reception to Jesus. You see, the host, who should have been acting like the host, plays the spectator, whereas the host is actually this intrusive woman who shows up at the party and acts like a host to Christ. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus says, this is what's going on. It's like if two people have a debt. One has 10 times the debt of the other, 
and both debts are canceled, who do you think is going to be a little more excited, a little more fired up, a little more thankful and grateful to the one who just canceled the debt? And Simon says, okay, that's pretty easy. Of course, the one who had the larger debt. If you owed someone $5,000 versus $500, you're probably a little more jacked up if you just got the $5,000 debt canceled, right? And Jesus turns it on Simon. He says, Simon, this, you see what's going on here? You who should be so in tune with God and have everything figured out. And, and you, if you, if you have really experienced and tasted the grace of God, you should be the one loving much here. But apparently you don't know about the grace of God in the way that you might think you do. Because this woman here whose sin is great has come to me. And she is receiving the forgiveness and love of God. And she is loving much because she has been forgiven much. And so, listen, great faith will display itself through extravagant devotion back to God. See, here, here's the issue. It's not, it's not so much 50, you know, the near I, five, the near That's not the point, Okay. The point is this, some people see their debt and some people don't see their debt. So let me just, I'm just going to be straight here. If, if, you're, if you're here in the room today and you're saying, you know what, I'm not such a bad person, you're just like the Pharisee. You don't see your debt before God. And if you don't see your debt before God, you're in a bad place to not receive his forgiveness and grace. Because here's the deal. All right? The gospel helps us figure all this out. The gospel teaches us that we are all in debt before God. Whether we seem to be a really moral person or not so moral person, we all have a debt before God, and the debt is an infinite debt. Why is that? Because God is infinite in his holiness. If we understood the holiness of God, just how perfect God is, we wouldn't, you know, think some sins are really, you know, trite and others are really great. I mean, yes, I mean, some sins may be more grave than others, but in the sight of God, man, they all put us in an infinite amount of debt before him. But Christ is also infinite in his grace and love and he extends grace to all people so that the difference between this, this lady who was a really nasty sinner apparently and, and the Pharisee who seemed to have it all together was that she accepted the, the work that Christ was doing on her behalf and the Pharisee did not. And so what's the only distinction? Well, now Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The Pharisee hears nothing like that. So let me ask you, have you ever placed your faith in Christ? I think, I think we could all agree, man. We've all blown it. If we believe that there is a God and he exists, then, then, then we understand that we haven't measured up to his standard for our lives. We've deviated from his plan. We've deviated from his will. And that has created a separation from, from God and, and us. But now Christ, this is why Jesus came, by the way, we're going to celebrate Christmas and next month is Jesus came to pay the price to be our substitute so that through faith in him and his resurrection, we can now have life. We can have our sins forgiven. We can be loved much so we can love much in return. 
So are you displaying great faith with your life? Are you pouring out your life? In light of the gospel, is there anything that we could not, should not, would not want to do for God? The answer has to be conclusively no. So to return to the question we asked at the beginning, how, how great is your faith? Because here, here's the deal. Jesus is probably marveling at your faith this morning. And, and you, you might say, well, yeah, I hope, I hope he is. Like, I hope he, I'm kind of like the centurion here. Do, do you know there's only one other time where it, it says that Jesus marveled at another person or people? It's in Mark chapter 6. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, it says that Jesus marveled at the people in his hometown of Nazareth. Why? Because of their unbelief. Jesus marvels at great faith. He loves to reward great faith, but he also marvels at those who do not have faith. And so it's my hope and prayer that that even if you come today with doubts, that you are going to wrestle with those doubts and come to the place where you could also place great faith in Jesus because Jesus changes everything in our lives for the better, for the good. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that you would open our, our eyes to see this, uh, this truth that we've, we've encountered in Luke 7. God, perhaps for, for some here today, they, they really haven't ever made things right with you. They've never uh, seen the, the, the gravity, the, the, the magnitude of their sin and how that separates them from you and what Christ has done to bridge that gap. And so, God, I pray for those people that, that you would awaken faith in their heart and they would say, you know what, I need that. I need, I need change. I need to find true satisfaction, abundant life. So Lord, would you, would you awaken faith here in this place right now? And, and even for those of us maybe have, have had faith for many, many years, we still have the, the opportunity, the privilege of, of placing faith in you again and again and again. And so Lord, would you increase our faith? As the man said in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe that's just what we need to pray. God, increase my faith. Help me to have more faith in you that I might uh, know your power and, and live in your power and, and display extravagant devotion back to you day by day by day. So God, would you show us where we are and where you, will you show us where we can be by your grace? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, listen, we're